I'm Kevin Richard. Well, if there's one thing you know about the podcast, we love talking about the run-up to an election, but we also love talking about the aftermath of an election. So to break down what happened in Tuesday's elections and, and how that might affect schools and kids and parents and taxpayers and how it might affect what we see happen at the 2023 Idaho legislative session, I've put together a panel of three of my favorite pundits to talk about what happened and what to look for. Clark Corbin is a reporter with the Idaho Capital Sun. He's also an Idaho at News alumnus. Rod Grammer is the CEO of Idaho Business for Education. And Jacqueline Kettler is a political science professor from Boise State University. I sat down with him Thursday, and here's our conversation. Well, Clark, Rod, Jackie, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, so much to talk about this week. Um, I thought I would just start with all three of you and just what was the biggest surprise for all of you as you watched Tuesday night heading into now Thursday as we break this election down? Yeah, Kevin, thanks for having me back. I think the thing that for sure surprised me the most was the proposed constitutional amendment mm -hmm. yeah. uh, passing. That was the SJR 102. It allows the Idaho legislature with a 60% vote of vote, both chambers to call itself back into session really at any time for any reason. The difference here is that previously only Idaho's governor could call a special session. And that does happen. And we've had special sessions. We had a special se in session September. in September yeah. of this year. We had another one in uh, 2020, I want to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the thing that surprised me the most. It was it was pretty close. It was like 52, 48, somewhere along there. Um, that really was the thing that surprised me. Uh, but I think, it, again, it was it originated in the legislature uh, with concerns from legislators about COVID restrictions and protocols and the governor uh, really having a say in those. It was kind of a power struggle uh, between the legislature and the governor. And I think the vote reflected uh, some of that in, in some of the, uh, I think COVID is the backdrop. But now I think uh, the legislature is even more powerful than it has been. And I think that I'd be curious to what, hear what everybody else says, but I think over the last 10 years we've seen the legislature uh, increase its power, and I think now it has more power than I've ever seen at any point uh, when I've been covering it. So that surprised me the most, but I would love to hear um, from Jackie and, and Rod about what they think. I agree. I think this was I mean, this was something I was watching really closely was this mm -hmm. constitutional amendment. And I thought at first, like it, it, initial numbers seemed like maybe it would fail. And then as those later counties reported, um, we saw the, the yes gaining traction. And I think it will be very fascinating to see how the legislature handles this power, because it depends on how they decide to use it. They could use it sparingly. They could use it frequently and often. And that really will shape the effect of it. But I also it's really interesting to see the legislature of the last few years really try to expand their power and they've been successful in a few different ways whether it's in terms of the you know the executive branch or other other elements and so this does seem to just add to that trend yeah i i agree with everyone else this is i really thought conventional wisdom was this thing would fail mm -hmm. yeah uh, there was a lot of people against it almost anybody that hangs around the legislature was against it and uh i do think it was a backlash against uh, uh some of the things that happened during covid but to what clark and uh jack said it, it's also over the years uh the legislature's been trying to expand its power remember the the veto that butch otter did on the horse racing and they went to court and, and, and the governor lost that. I mean, this legislature and the governor's been at odds now for even before Brad Little. And 
they've been exerting their power, and um, and I think this is a this is going to really change the balance of power in Idaho politics, really. And it feels like, and it feels to me like this alone says something about this election that here we are talking about the biggest surprise, maybe one of the biggest developments of the the election, and we're not talking about the gubernatorial race, we're not talking about a new attorney general, a new state superintendent, we're talking about this amendment. And it's important, I'm not diminishing it, but that's the big takeaway from an election night where every statewide office was on the ballot. But you know, if you think about it, you know, politicians come and go. Um, this is forever. And that is why it's so doggone significant is because this is forever. We'll have a new governor eventually. We'll have new uh, legislators in there. How many legislators have we seen over the years come and go? This is forever, and that's why it's so significant. It's a really, really good point. So what kind of night did Brad Little have? I mean, obviously he won, and he won with 60% against uh, a pretty inactive Democratic opponent. But at the same time, Emin Bundy gets 17% as an independent. Voters sided with the legislature, in effect, uh, giving the legislature more power uh, and, in effect, taking away some power from the governor with, with this constitutional amendment. So what sort of message did, uh, did this election send to the governor, do you think? Well, to me, uh, Bundy's 17% sent a strong message that the far right is alive and well. Uh, in the state, and uh, you know, just out of out of curiosity, the last time we had a, a third party in the general election, that is, spoiler, was 1966, and that's when Perry Swisher uh, uh, got involved in that. Cost you know, Cease Andrus used to think that that cost him the election. Perry got 12 percent of the vote uh, in 1966. There was another independent that got nine percent. But, I mean, Ammon Bundy got 17% just on his own, and I, I think that's a sign that there's another sign that there's really two political parties here in Idaho. It's a really interesting point. Had it been a more competitive race, that 17% would have would have played a role. Um, and, I, I, and interesting as well, the Democratic candidate didn't do as well as some of the other Democratic statewide candidates did, suggesting some Democrats may have, Democratic voters may have crossed over and actually voted for Little, perhaps in some sort of concern with with Bundy or just, you know, show of support. But I think that's really kind of interesting to compare across races as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think Stephen Height set the floor for what support um, for an Idaho Democrat could be. I initially said on the radio that it was the lowest amount that a Democrat had got in at least 28 years, which is as far back as election records are posted on the Secretary of State's office. I got a text from a former staffer of the late Governor Cecil Andrus said you had to go all the way back to 1926 Asher Wilson uh, to find a lower percentage that a Democrat got in Idaho. So that's almost 100 years. Yeah. Wow. Um, interestingly, I thought different races, different contexts, different candidates, Brad Little's 60% this year was essentially identical to the 60% share of the vote he won in the 2018 general election. That was against Democrat Paulette Jordan. Um, different candidates, a different field. Um, Paulette Jordan got about 38% of the vote that yeah. year, uh, whereas you look at Stephen Height getting 20% this year, that's almost the difference between what Paulette Jordan got four years ago and what Stephen Height got today almost represents what Eamon Bundy got as well. So I think that that's really interesting. I was at election headquarters on Tuesday night, and Brad Little did say he takes the vote as a mandate. 
Uh, he did get a majority. I know that some libertarians and, and, and more conservative folks were speculating as to whether the governor would get a majority this year. Obviously he did. He got 60% and in a brief speech before he left early on election night on Tuesday, uh, he did say that he took that vote as a mandate to continue the policies and the leadership style uh, that he's been pushing the last four years. Yeah, you know, if you look at the how the Democrats did statewide, the constitutional officers, most of them got 30% or less. And, you know, in the past, if, if you just got your name on the ballot, you do 35, 38%, right? And there was that candidate for attorney general a few years ago that actually endorsed Wasden, and he, he even he oh my even, goodness, that's I mean, right. He, yeah. even, he, he even got thirty five percent. So I, I think that what uh, I think having uh, a weak uh, candidate at the top of the ticket uh, for governor really uh, sort of uh, hurt all the candidates down down the ballot uh, because twenty percent. I mean, uh, you know. It, we knew this was going to be a tough year for Democrats anyway, but that is quite a drop from 35, 38% to 20% or 30%. Uh, so I think, uh, I, I think that hurt. And it leads to one election that I think is a, an unqualified mandate, and that's the superintendent race. I mean, I, I, we've talked before, I've said this many times, that this is the one race that in the past we've thought is the most viable race for a Democrat because the past couple of election cycles, Sherry Ibarra won, but won narrowly. Debbie Critchfield pulled almost 70%. Mm -hmm. and, and the win isn't really a surprise, but the margin really uh, kind of took me aback a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kevin, we were on the radio the other day, and, and I've read some of your coverage that I really agreed with. I think there's a couple of factors. Uh, Debbie Critchfield was a strong member of the State Board of Education. She was active. She's been campaigning for this job for probably two years, and she's been hitting it hard, going to all different counties, all up and down the state. She had some political connections before. She really beat, built that up when she left the State Board of Education to focus on campaigning when she made that decision almost two years ago or whenever it was. I also liked what you talked about, about the previous incumbent in the races, yeah. uh, outgoing superintendent of public instruction, Sherry Ibarra. She was not a traditional candidate, and she said as much publicly, uh, that she was not going to act and think and behave like a traditional candidate for elected office. Uh, she hardly ever campaigned. Um, there were a series of, of, of gaffes and mistakes uh, over the years out of her office, and there were some strong challenges, I think particularly um, the last two cycles from Democrats in the state superintendent of public instructions race. But uh, an interesting race this year, but it did challenge kind of some of the conventional wisdom that we had talked about maybe the previous eight years at Idaho Education News and our coverage of that office and that race. Right, yeah, I think that her strong campaign really helped build her numbers even higher and probably focusing, especially in the general election, on some messaging on some issues that could more broadly appeal as well, which may have helped increase. And she's not the only one. Phil McGrain for Secretary of State also um, got a pretty high percentage of the vote. And so picking up some independent, some Democratic voters along the way, too. Yeah, I mean, Debbie's a fresh face. Uh, at the same time, she's an insider, mm -hmm. and uh, she's a great communicator, always has been a great communicator, and I think she just crossed a lot of, uh, she, she got Republicans, probably got Independents, maybe even some Democrats, I don't know, but 69% is very impressive, and, and I think that uh, she's, she has a you know, good record of communication, and she's play, been a player, like Clark said, uh, so yeah, she's 
pretty strong candidate. It'll be interesting, and I hope I'm not spoiling where you're going next, it'll be interesting to see how she conducts herself in office. I expect that maybe she will be more active, more publicly visible, more hands-on state superintendent of public mm -hmm. instruction. Uh, and, and time will bear that out, but that's one thing I'll be watching, and, and one thing I'm kind of thinking and sort of predicting. And she has kind of the same challenges at the State House that Governor Little is going to have in a second term at the State House. She's going to have to work with a really diverse Republican caucus, including a bunch of conservatives who take a very different view on education, uh, on the role of education, public education that she does. So that'll be interesting to watch. I think very much she's a Brad Little Republican. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, she's right of center and and she's she's right there with Phil, Phil McCrane too. He's he's kind of a Brad Little Republican, right? And so uh, yeah, she, you know she fits in right well with the governor, and it's going to be interesting how she works with other people. And just before we pressed record on the podcast, uh, Critchfield announced her first two appointments to her inner circle, and one is Greg Wilson, who had been. Brad Little's education advisor for most of his first term, so the connections continue. Let's talk about the AG's race, because we all were watching it closely, and in the end, it wasn't a very close race. What, what do we take away from that? And what do we expect now from <laughs> Attorney General-elect uh, Raul Labrador? Well, Raul Labrador is an extremely strong candidate. I mean, he, uh, again, this is sort of the division in the Republican Party, right? He is the titular head of uh, that wing of the party now. And um, uh, he's, you know, he, he was strong in the primary, he's strong in the general, and uh, He's a formidable force in the, in the state uh, politics right now. Yeah, Labrador has high name recognition. We've known that for a while. He's served in Congress. He's won statewide uh, or run for statewide office before. So he came into the campaign with some advantages, right? Um, and this was the one race where it was like, well, maybe Democrats have more of a shot. Arkush, the Democratic nominee, did run a more engaged campaign than some of the other statewide Democratic candidates, even got support from some former Republican mm -hmm. officials, and yet didn't even crack 40%. So it demonstrates just the challenge Democrats face at the statewide level in Idaho. That may be another one where we see a dynamic change in the way the office has been managed from outgoing Attorney General Lawrence Wasden, uh, to use his term, was sort of well known for calling balls and strikes as he saw them uh, with the legislature. And, and, and occasionally issuing an Attorney General's opinion saying uh, this piece of legislation may be found to be unconstitutional, may have problems. On the other hand, uh, during the debates on the campaign trail, Raul Labrador talked about having a strong, active, conservative attorney general who would work with the Idaho legislature. I know several times Raul Labrador uh, said the media was wrong to say that he would politicize the office, but in Raul Labrador's own words, he has said that Idahoans want a strong, conservative attorney general who will work actively with the Idaho legislature. I think that would be a very big shift uh, and a big difference in terms of what we have seen out of the attorney general's office mm -hmm. to what we may be about to see for the next four years. And I was struck by the politics of election night. Yeah, that was the most <laughs> exciting thing of the night. <laughs> you know, normally election night, uh, it's a time where, you know, party members sort of try to, you know, put some of the discord put some of the disagreement aside, especially uh, on primary night. This was election night where Raul Labrador called out the media and called out Republicans who had endorsed uh, Tom Arkush. So this was not a, you know, this is not a conciliatory speech. It was a fairly, you know, 
adversarial. The gloves were off. He was one of the last people to speak uh, at the Republican election night watch party uh, at the Grove Hotel in downtown Boise. Uh, the gloves were off. That was the end of his message, too. Uh, he looked straight into the cameras, out into the crowd of 100 people, and said to the media and to the 50 former and current Republicans who endorsed my opponent, this race, I'm paraphrasing slightly, this race is about the future of the party, and your actions proved you have no relevance to the party going forward. So the gloves were off. That was really uh, the most antagonistic uh, moment of, of, of the whole night there, uh, right at the end. And he got, he got some cheers, as, as you might expect, and so it was... Uh, it was interesting for sure. Well, that was Raul Labrador's announcement for governor in 2026. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he has already started the campaign. And, I mean, yeah, there are two Republican parties in Idaho. I mean, all of us who've covered the legislature, followed the legislature, you know, we've, we've known that there's always been divisions. But this is official. I mean, one wing controls the party, the other wing controls the governor's office and a couple other constitutional offices. There are two Republican parties in Idaho, and Raul is going to lead like he's head of one wing of that party. And he's, you know, let's face it, he's run, he ran for attorney general because he needed a perch to run for governor in four years. And he's, he's going to do everything he can over the next four years to, to win that office uh, four years from now. And if you look at Labrador's numbers and you look at the percentage he pulled and the raw vote total, it is eerily similar to the numbers that Scott Bedke pulled in the lieutenant governor's race, which was a three-person race, not a two-person race, so that changes the math a little bit. But, you know, let's play what if. I mean, if, if Labrador is running in 2026 and Bedke is running in 2026, assuming that uh, Brad Little is stepping aside, that gives you a sense of how close that race might be, how close that primary might be, and how divided the party is. Yeah, but there are other races that could come open be between now and 26, too, right? There's congressional offices, there's Senate offices. So, uh, but yeah, right now it looks like it would be a bed key and, and, and Labrador race in 26. But clearly, um, clearly, uh, it's going to be very interesting. I, you know, I've covered as a reporter. Uh, going back to Tony Park, you know Wayne Kidwell, Dave Leroy. I mean, we've we're never we've never had an attorney general like Raul Labrador is going to have. Um, that that office has always been pretty non-political over the years, but this is going to be different. Well, and it is interesting. We've seen in other states the attorney general starting to play a more political role. It's kind of been a trend in many states, especially as a check or pushing against the federal government. So it is kind of interesting that perhaps Idaho will look more similar to some of these other states that have really been using the state AG office for that role. Um, but I, I think you are, you're all right. It may look may look very different than what we've seen before, seen recently at least here in Idaho. Yeah, and I think it's not just going to be uh, how he interacts with the legislature or what laws he defends or doesn't defend, but also his role on the state land board. I mean, you know, he's, I think he's going to be take that activist role right over to the state board, uh, land board. And in almost everything he does, he's very, very political. Um, not many changes in the legislature. Most of the races were... Uh, a lot of races were unopposed, and a lot of races were settled in the primary. A couple of changes, a couple of outcomes that I thought were interesting. The District 6 Senate race, uh, Dan Foreman defeating uh, you know, David Nelson, the Democrat in, in Moscow. Democrats flipping the Senate seat in West Boise in District 15. And the net result, I mean, Democrats wound up losing a seat uh, because of uh, 
a, a glitch in reporting that was uh, announced uh, on Thursday. They lost a seat in District 26 that it looked like was theirs. How do you see all of this? Uh, how do you see the dynamics of the legislature based on what we saw Tuesday night? It's going to be a huge change in 2023. Uh, as we record this on Thursday, I just left the Legislative Council meeting uh, at the Idaho State Capitol building, which is essentially a meeting of uh, Republican and Democratic leaders. They're bracing for the transition to the 2023 session. Uh, this morning they talked about 39 out of 105 seats in the Idaho legislature will be held by complete rookies who have never been a legislator before. The number grows to 51 new faces when you factor in people who were not serving last year but may have previously served and been elected again, people who are serving in a new or different chamber than the year before, and then also people who were appointed um, appointed after the, uh, the last election cycle. And so that would be 51 new people. We're talking a new Speaker of the House, a new Chairman of the Senate Education Committee, at least 12 new members of the Joint Finance Appropriation Committee, new House Health and Welfare Chair, new Senate Health and Welfare Chair, new House Judiciary and Rules Chairman, all kinds of changes. One of the things I think we're is really going to be... We're to have to read those name tags. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> absolutely. But just to underscore how big of a change it is we're expecting, but we're also expecting the Idaho Senate uh, to become more conservative. Over the last decades, the Senate has represented a sort of check on the Idaho House, where they refused to hear some of the more extreme legislation that had passed the House, never granted a hearing in the Senate. Uh, when you think about the new conservative senators who are coming in, some of the moderates who either retired or were defeated, I think there are big changes to the Senate uh, where it will become a more conservative body and it will not necessarily represent that check on the Idaho House uh, that certainly we had seen for at least the last 20 years. And those leadership elections, especially those Senate leadership elections, are going to be fascinating because Dan Foreman is another conservative in that Republican caucus. They could have actually added a couple more, had Cody Galloway won in 15 had David Worley won in the Pocatello area, District 29, they would have probably been caucusing with those conservatives. It's going to be really interesting to see who winds up in leadership and how that how those leadership folks are uh, pushed and pulled by their, their caucus members. Yeah, a long time ago I gave up when I was reporting, uh, trying to predict leadership races. They are the hardest <laughs> things to predict. I got burned more than once. but. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be very very interesting. I looking at the you know we're still trying to figure out the makeup of this Senate, but I, I think Chuck depends how the how the you know the things sort of fall. But I think he's going to get reelected. But I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see how that can, turns out. That if you're Chuck Winder, you may get reelected to head this uh, Senate caucus. This. But do you want to? I mean, it's going to be a lot tougher job. Well, you look at Scott Bedke, he yeah. lost control of that caucus, what, three, four years ago, really. And and uh, same thing could happen to Chuck Winder. Uh, he may get the job, but he may not want it. After. All these new conservative senators coming in, Scott Herndon, Brian Lenny, uh, Phil Hart is coming back yeah. to the Idaho yeah. Senate. Uh, Tammy Nichols is coming over from the Idaho House to the Idaho Senate. Ben Adams is coming over from the Idaho House uh, to the Idaho Senate. There are several more, uh, but several very conservative uh, members of the Senate. I, 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 I like what Rod said a lot about uh, predicting racism, how difficult that's going to be, and, and all of that stuff for sure. I do think, I mean, the house will be really interesting to watch for some different reasons just for so many new new faces new new legislators and 
it takes some time to figure out what's going on. Like it, it's so you, you know, it's, it's seeing how some of these new members, what they do, what they focus on and whether they jump in, whether they kind of sit back, see what's going on may really shape what we see the house doing this year as well, or next year as well. Quick last question for all three of you. What is the one thing we haven't been talking about enough this election cycle that really, that, that hit home for you as you watched the numbers Tuesday night and Wednesday and Thursday now? I mean, what are we I, not talking about that we should be talking about? This, this has got some attention, but I, I, I think the Democrats and their performance this year, not just the actual returns on election day, we knew for years this was a vitally important election where a governor's race, all 105 seats in the legislature, and oh, by the way, redistricting mm -hmm. were going to collide. That's not going to happen again until 2042. Uh, Democrats did not run candidates in dozens of races across the state to the point that before a vote was even counted, we knew that Republicans would retain their majority in the Idaho House. When you look at the statewide candidates, many of the Democratic candidates this year were lifelong Republicans until very recently. I'm thinking about Wendy Norman, the second district congressional uh, nominee. I'm thinking about Terry Pickens Manweiler, uh, the lieutenant governor uh, candidate. I'm thinking about Stephen Height, the sort of accidental uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidate uh, who had run for Congress. Kind word. Uh, who had run for Congress unsuccessfully uh, as a Republican out of the states of Utah and Washington previously. Um, there was, I don't know, there wasn't, I think that hasn't been talked about enough. Um, and not to pile on, but, um, and then Roe v. Wade this summer too, but we knew for all of these reasons that this was going to be a vitally important election. I know that the Democrats said they're rebuilding and they're playing the long game. This was the Super Bowl. This was so much at stake this year. We're not going to have another election like this in Idaho until 2042. And they spent a lot of money in some of those legislative races and still wind up losing a, a seat. In, in, yeah. So so I kind of look at it just in a different way. Um, what you said about the Democrats, right. But I, I think the untold story is what's happening in the Republican Party. I This was an unprecedented... We had Phil Batt endorsing the Democratic <laughs> candidate for Attorney General. We had big names, Ben Yasursa, Jim Jones. I think the real story for, for uh, journalists and those of us who follow legislature is what is going to happen in the future of the party, the Republican Party. Because frankly, I don't know, as I talk to a lot of Republicans and they're saying, you know, this doesn't look like my party anymore. And they feel homeless. And, and I think you saw that defection for the first time in my memory uh, when you had like Phil Batten or seeing somebody. And so my big question mark, which I hope we can follow up on and dig into, is what's going to happen to those disillusioned Republicans? Up north at the NIC election, a lot of Republicans yeah. were trying to save their community college. And now they're, they've lost it again. Yeah. So what are they going to do? You know, really I think that's the story. Like, what are these Republicans going to do? I mean, it's a great it's a great question, and we've seen in some other states, not as lopsided, but for example in Kansas, where eventually they did start moving more into the Democratic Party, and they have elected Democratic, like Laura Kelly, a Democratic governor, but yet Idaho is a little different that Republicans have such a, a large majority at this point. It's, you know, whether or not that's how it plays out, I think is an open question, but for the Democrats, I mean, it's just really hard to build a party if you don't have candidates on the ballot. That is such a key point. Rod, earlier you mentioned the, the influence can, strong candidates at the top of the ballot can have. 
for the Democrats, that may have hurt them in some of these legislative races, local races, um, and not being able to capitalize on what ended up being kind of surprisingly a pretty good election nationally for the Democrats. And so they really weren't able to capitalize that in any way here in Idaho. Well, so we set the stage for the 2026 gubernatorial election already. We we recapped the 1926 gubernatorial election, which I did not podcast about, by the way. And 66. A hundred years of Idaho politics on one show. In 27 minutes. If that's not good good enough for mothers of brats, then she can have her money back. Yeah. Clark, Rod, Jackie, always fun to catch up and and talk politics with you. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kevin. Again, that was Clark Corbin, a staff writer with Idaho Capital Sun, Rod Grammer, the CEO of Idaho Business for Education, and Jacqueline Kettler, a political science professor at Boise State University. If you missed any of our coverage this week on the election, we have you covered at idahoednews.org. Sadie Dittenberg has our coverage of the state superintendent's race. She spoke to Superintendent-elect Debbie Critchfield Tuesday night as the election results started rolling in. We have that story, and we have all of the numbers, all of the results that have an impact on education. We have you covered at idahoednews.org. Carly Flandro has the roundup of what happened with bond issues and levies in eastern Idaho, including a record-shattering bond issue in Idaho Falls that went down to defeat. We have that story as well. And I have a piece that I published on Wednesday, my weekly analysis, taking a look at these election results and, and trying to tease out what it all means and what it, uh, what are the implications going forward. That's a story that I published Wednesday afternoon. Again, you can find that at idahoednews.org. And we have non-election news on the website. Carly has a piece about West Ada School District's policy on locking doors, a, a school safety uh, policy that's in effect. And she talked to educators about how that's working out in the classroom. A legislative committee looking at school building issues met on Thursday afternoon. I covered that meeting, and we'll have an update on what legislators are talking about there. If you missed anything this week, you can find it all at idahoednews.org. And if you want to make sure not to miss anything next week, make sure to follow us daily. And follow us on Twitter. Yes, we're still on Twitter at idahoednews. Uh, We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking items. You can follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And I will be back with another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.